Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touch-tone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Regina, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Understanding How Healthcare Disparities May Influence Your Cancer Treatment and Care, with tips and strategies to find the best cancer treatment and healthcare team for you. And this is part one of a two-part series of how healthcare disparities may influence your cancer treatment and care. Today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, GlaxoSmithKline, and a grant from Genentech. And I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now, we have um, a number of you on the call today. There's over 310 participants on the call. And you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Kenya, Malawi, Mauritius, Nigeria, Philippines, United Kingdom. So this is truly a global call as well. And we are very delighted to have all of you on the call today. And now it is my great pleasure to introduce my first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Edith Mitchell. Dr. Mitchell is Clinical Professor of Medicine and Medical Oncology, Department of Medical Oncology, Director Center to Eliminate Cancer Disparities, Associate Director Diversity Affairs, Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Jefferson, 116th President, National Medical Association, and Brigadier General, retired United States Air Force. Dr. Mitchell will be addressing disproportionate burden of COVID, Omicron, seasonal flu, allergies, and cancer on people of color, and how race may impact your access to oncology care, cancer treatments, management of treatment, and treatment side effects, and pain. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Mitchell. Thank you so much for this opportunity, Dr. Messner. Thanks for the invitation uh, to speak on today's program. And thanks to my um, colleagues who will follow me in discussion today. This is really an important discussion. And thanks to you who are participants in the program. So thank you very much. Um, it is well recognized that the slaves were brought to the Virginia colonies uh, in the early 1600s. Many of the slaves were dead on arrival and others very ill. And here we are more than 400 years later talking about still disparities in healthcare. And this is really a very important um, uh, topic, although for many years it was not emphasized very much in American culture. The COVID pandemic really allowed additional information that was apparent to many throughout the country of various conditions and the disparities uh, and basically that what uh, that we call the haves and the have-nots. 
it was well recognized from data uh, that uh, COVID so vividly uh, had higher numbers in um, certain individuals, certain neighborhoods, and throughout the country. Uh, It was also recognized that COVID affected uh, racial groups, uh, especially African Americans and Hispanic or Latino populations in higher numbers with more individuals and a higher percentage of these desperate, uh, disparate uh, communities experiencing more um, infections, a greater number of hospitalizations, especially in intensive care units, more individuals on respirators, and more individuals dying of COVID. Uh, And this was apparent in many numbers in many cities, uh, especially in cities where there was uh, overpopulation or a higher population of African-Americans and Latinos. Uh, And it was very apparent from uh, COVID numbers that fewer uh, members of certain racial and ethnic groups uh, had fewer uh, vaccinations uh, and consequently fewer preventive aspects of care. It was also recognized that many individuals from these populations uh, did not have the opportunities to work from home, for example, the bus drivers, uh, where there was a higher incidence of COVID uh, for many uh, uh, home workers, uh, many maids, and other individuals who had lower income jobs and who worked outside of the home and therefore could not stay home uh, to work online. Uh, so that we had um, an awakening during uh, COVID. And fortunately, uh, the pandemic um, is over, yet many of these lower-income individuals still uh, are developing COVID uh, in higher numbers. We also recognize that race is important and risk of developing cancer uh, is another aspect of uh, disparities. Prevention of uh, disparities in cancer uh, is very important such that we see these same populations having a higher incidence of smoking, uh, obesity, and other factors that uh, relate to the development of cancer. Uh, It is also very apparent that these same populations have problems related to redlining, where individuals could not live in all 
areas of cities. Um, and therefore, with redlining, there was also a paucity of um, supermarkets and places where one could purchase healthy foods. So as a doctor, uh, I would tell my patients, eat healthy, eat, buy healthy food, fresh fruits and vegetables, yet there were none in their uh, neighborhoods. And this also related to the prevalence of healthcare institutions where one could get and obtain uh, healthy care, uh, prevention services, and uh, a low number of professionals who look like them. It is well recognized that while, for example, the African-American population uh, is about 13% of the American population, yet uh, fewer than 5% of all practicing physicians are African-Americans. It's also recognized that some patients prefer uh, doctors and other clinicians who have something in common uh, with them. And therefore, healthcare in the nation uh, is at disparate levels, and that includes fewer individuals from uh, disparate uh, communities as clinicians, but also the presence of bias in our healthcare system where many individuals do not uh, recognize and treat individuals from disparate communities well. Uh, so therefore, um, disparities exist not only in cancer research, the uh, participation in clinical trials, uh, and therefore, uh, research and newer developments of cancer discoveries in disparate populations. Therefore, as President Biden said in February 2022, when he said we needed to decrease the mortality rates of cancer in the country and that everybody had a role. So everyone has a role uh, to address cancer disparities, to address participation in clinical trials by all individuals, and therefore to improve uh, prevention of cancer in our country as well as treatment, diagnostic, and therapeutic interventions so that we are preventing cancer so that we are screening for cancer and thereby can uh, diagnose cancers at an early st earlier stage where treatment is likely to give a better uh, result, but also where we can prevent cancers. So Dr. Messner, I am so appreciative of the opportunity to speak to the group today, and I advise everyone, let's play a role 
in screening for cancer, earlier diagnosis of cancer, and prevention of cancer so that we can decrease the overall cancer death rate in this country. I thank you so much for the opportunity to participate in this panel today, and I thank my other illustrious uh, panel members who will follow me in discussions today. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Mitchell. That was a superb presentation. You really set the stage for our program today and just so eloquently have described the issues um, and so all of us could be aware of them um, as we move forward with other presenters. But this has been a, a, an amazing presentation. Thank you so much, Dr. Mitchell. And our next speaker is Dr. Michael Wong. Dr. Wong is Professor of Medical Oncology, Melanoma and Cutaneous Malignancies, Executive Director, Intergen Inter Integration and Program Development, Cancer Network, University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Wong will be addressing effect of COVID on healthcare systems, how telehealth may help in enhancing, advancing your health equity, and guidelines to communicate with your healthcare team, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wong. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Mesner. It's indeed an honor and a privilege to be able to come speak to you today and especially to participate with this august faculty. And, uh, and I really truly appreciate Dr. Mitchell's uh, opening statements. It's fantastic. Uh, and it indeed is a call to action. My segment, I want to spend a little time uh, talking about what we can do specifically in our own situation when, uh, when we're seeking health care. One of the things COVID has done is that it has completely, like an earthquake, shaking the foundation of what we used to do, past tense. So the good news is that it's really accelerated uh, the implementation of technology that allows us to speak to each other, to look at each other, to, and indeed to, uh, to begin to understand how best to uh, have a physician uh, uh, and patient encounter electronically. It's built new muscle uh, for us here in, in the kind of things we do, new processes. And more importantly, I hope it's sort of given in a good way uh, uh, patients an opportunity to reach out in ways they have not had before. Uh, I talk about the good things. There are some barriers, of course, that we have to be aware of. First of all, this is technology. And, and the other day, uh, in speaking with my 90-year-old mother who wanted to show me a rash on her leg, uh, this was easily a... Uh, a seven to ten minute exercise in, in pointing the iPad in the correct direction, frustrating as it is. She finally got it, but it's an example of how technology is not intuitively obvious to those who didn't grow up uh, with a cell phone in their hands, and that's me included. There are also barriers. You have to have a, a smartphone or some sort of electronic device. You have to have Wi-Fi and so on and so forth. You have to be, quote, unquote, set up and uh, that requires its own infrastructure, and not everyone is clued into that. So we start talking about things like your SSID and, and, and how to set passwords and so on and so forth. Many of us, the majority of us, would be lost within the first five seconds of that discussion. So those are barriers, but not insurmountable. Uh, uh, now, uh, one of the ways to get around that is to engage with the healthcare team. Uh, uh, one of the best practices we have is that we actually reach out to our patients who have a televisit, especially if it's their first time, to, to make sure they understand how to do it, 
uh, where to push the buttons on their app, uh, and so on and so forth. It actually starts at the uh, first appointment if they're here face-to-face. -face. I, I always insist on seeing my new patients face-to-face, uh, -face. and then uh, in that situation, that setting, we try to make sure that our front office staff uh, and it goes through uh, the, the the ins and outs of getting the app on your phone, how to do it, set up your password, so on and so forth. So, and then we actually reach out to uh, individuals to remind them something like, "Hey, tomorrow at two o'clock, you you have a virtual visit with Dr. Wong. Are you okay with that?" And and sets up. And what I'm encouraging you to do, that if you're not okay with that, time to speak up, right? And say, "Listen, I can't do it. It's it's I'm not ready for that. I don't understand. It's." These are not shameful things. These are things that are facts of life. And so we will uh, segue to using just a telephone, for instance, if you don't uh, have a smartphone. And of course, uh, I actually uh, feel that there's a very unique place for in-person visits. And, um, and, and, there, and if you think that's what you need, then you should ask for it. So one of the first things I want to tell you to do is you have to advocate for yourself. Right, and, and be aware of what you need uh, to, to, to have someone look after you. This is not the time to, um, to sort of have this relationship where the doctor is all-knowing. Well, we, we may be all-knowing, but we sure can't see you if, if we're doing it over the phone or, uh, or if we're doing it by virtual, we're not seeing everything. So always need your help to make sure that's a good appointment. There are ways that uh, this new telemedicine uh, uh, flattens down the inequalities. What am I talking about? Well, uh, if you're quote-unquote set up and you're able to do a virtual visit, uh, then uh, uh, you don't need to drive here. There's no gas in the car involved. You sure don't need to use the parking here, right? Uh, you have more flexibility in timing. Uh, if you don't have to drive here, you might even be able to do it uh, uh, after work or before work to have a late and early appointment, for example. There are things that are appropriate for televisits, and I think uh, to really take advantage of that, you, you want to reach out to your, your, your healthcare provider and say, listen, here are my constraints. Can we do a televisit here? And sometimes I tell my patients, no, this is serious enough that I, I want to see you. I, I got to you know, put my stethoscope on your chest. I want to see how you're breathing, right, because there are some things you just cannot assess virtually. But there are some things that you can, so work with the healthcare team. I want to end by giving you some things that you can use. Number one is uh, make a list of things that are important to you. You might even want to circle the most important thing because when we start a televisit, it's not obvious to the healthcare provider what your primary number one concern is. We do have a list of your medical issues and your chief complaint, complaint being the symptoms that we have to address, but it's not immediately obvious to what's important to you. So that's very, very important to, 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 to point out. Be aware that sometimes subtle symptoms uh, are important flags for us. For instance, uh, someone might say, I'm really tired, I have fatigue. That's enough for us to trigger. We cannot see you. So you have to put qualifiers to that. If I see you come in, I, I'll tell you one of the things I look for is that do I see a wheelchair outside the clinic room? That tells you that patient could not walk here, but we cannot see you. So you have to emphasize, I'm so tired, doctor, I, I'm sleeping 18 hours a day. I'm so tired, doctor. I come back from work. I'm in bed. I don't have dinner. Uh, here's one that someone told me. I'm so tired, I don't even get up to brush my teeth. Right. So you have to qualify these things. And because when we don't see you, can't touch you, can't, can't get the meta message, that is something that, uh, that's missing. So uh, make a list. Make sure we address what's important to you. 
uh, and make sure that you advocate for yourself. Uh, and lastly, if the technology is not working for you and telehealth isn't working for you, it, you know, please speak up and let us know. Right. And with that, I'll end and pass on to my fellow speakers who will uh, undoubtedly flesh out many of these points in greater detail. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and thank you for your time and attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Wong. That was an outstanding presentation. And again, you covered some really essential topics that are very important for us. Um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, and so thank you so much. Thanks. And our next speaker is Dr. Guadalupe Palos. Dr. Palos is former Clinical Protocol Administration Manager, Office of Cancer Survivorship, University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center, author and researcher in healthcare disparities, caregiving, and survivorship. And Dr. Palos will be addressing social determinants of health, including language spoken, health literacy, and the influence of the local, regional environment, local and regional environment in which you live, tips to cope with healthcare disparities, including valuing your identity, and tips to find your best healthcare team. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Palos. Dr. Messner, thank you for your kind invitation to join uh, this esteemed panel on the discussion of health disparities and their influence on cancer treatment. Dr. Mitchell gave us an insightful overview of how race and other social identity factors affect access to cancer care. Dr. Wong gave us an excellent discussion on how telehealth emerged during the pandemic as an innovative method to deliver equitable health care and remains in place today. Now, some of our audience may be wondering why cancer care has devoted an entire teleconference to discussing social determinants of health and how they contribute to health disparities. Let's begin by just defining, so that way we all uh, kind of begin from the same spot, what do we mean by the term social determinants of health? According to the World Health Organization, self, social determinants of health, and um, because I kind of stumble over those words, I'm going to use SDOH at times, are the non-medical, these are the non-medical factors influencing health outcomes. They are the conditions in which people are born, they grow, work, live, and age. They also include a broader set of forces and symptoms shaping the needs of daily lives. These forces and symptoms include like economic policies, social norms, climate change, political systems, and even social racism and discrimination. The Centers for Disease Control identified five areas of health determinants, healthcare access and quality, education access and quality, and that would include like health literacy issues, social and community context and neighborhoods, economic stability or instability, and neighborhood environments. Other examples of social determinants include food insecurity, housing, or other basic needs, social isolation or inclusion, or implicit or explicit biases. It's also access to affordable health services of decent quality. Dr. Chi and, and Ms. Medina Martinez will elaborate on some of these determinants later in the program. As previously mentioned, determinants of health contribute to vast inequities in cancer care. For example, 
people who don't have access to, uh, to cancer prevention or screening services are more likely to present with advanced disease and less likely to have access to comprehensive cancer treatments. That raises their risk for poor outcomes and lowers life expectancy. So we know that a cancer diagnosis triggers different responses from patients and their caregivers as they interact with their medical providers. The beliefs and understandings that patients, their families, and providers bring to the patient's cancer experience shape cancer care, right? These responses then evolve from each one worldview, that is the provider, the patient, and the caregiver. And each one of those worldviews help make sense of that cancer experience that they are all interacting in. Now, what are worldviews? They are basic beliefs and assumptions that express how cultures interpret and explain their day-to-day -day life experience. Worldviews can give rise to biases, stereotypes, and prejudice among all members of that uh, healthcare team, as that includes the patients, the caregivers, and the providers. And they can also then give rise to conflict in uh, clinical interactions between providers and patients. Appreciating these worldviews can bring meaning to the conflicts and miscommunication that may occur for both patients and uh, clinicians alike. The, re the richness, though, and complexity of worldviews can influence health disparities and one's social identity. You've heard that term. So what do we mean by social identities? It's the labels or the profiles that people use to identify themselves and other members uh, as themselves and uh, as members of groups. Social identity is one of the basic tenets of one's self-concept. So what strategies may be used to understand a patient's worldview and to value their social identity? Let's spend a moment, and I ask you to do this exercise with me, to reflect on the understanding of social identity. Think about the categories. I'm going to name a few, such as race, sex, gender expression, ethnicity, religion, level of health literacy, generation, nationality, uh, social roles such as parenting or caregiving and other similar uh, determinants. Now reflect on some of these characteristics and discover which ones are the most central to how you see yourself as a person and why you use these characteristics to identify or to form your, your own social identity. Which of these have the most significant impact on how others treat you in a, during a cancer experience? And why do they have that significant impact? Does your answer to this question about what is your social identity change depending on the context? Like for example, does it change when you're seeking the medical care, when you're interacting with a diverse healthcare team, or maybe when you're own, interacting with your own family? Are there aspects of your identity that you want to keep private or confidential? Are there aspects that you really want your healthcare team to know about and that are significantly important to you? And what effect does this social identity have, as you have on you as you move through your cancer journey? Also consider how these various social identities impact your decision-making about your healthcare and even your healthcare team. Providers need to know how a patient perceives themselves. 
A social identity lens can help spot situations when patients don't feel free to to share their own experience, are unintentionally shut out, or when actions or medical decisions may be rooted in unconscious bias. Cancer providers must also understand that our biomedical worldview, the world that we come from in oncology, has fostered implicit bias, which influences care delivery. Building worldview consciousness and understanding a patient's social identities are strategies to address these biases. It also facilitates humility, self-awareness, and respect needed to foster effective patient-centered care. Choosing healthcare providers is often based on the type and stage of cancer. When cancer is diagnosed, your primary care physician, nurse practitioner, or physician assistant may refer you to an oncologist they trust or they've worked with before. Friends and loved ones might also suggest providers they have worked with. If for any reason your provider does not uh, make a referral to an oncologist, Ask these folks, ask your friends, ask your other uh, providers to recommend an oncologist. Having an oncologist lead your cancer team is considered best practice, and Ms. Fortune will share information on resources for this later in our program. So in closing, I want to remind our audience that we are all responsible for addressing these determinants when possible. We can deepen our understanding of why various groups react to the cancer situation in different ways. Now, some of our audience members may share other tips to find the best healthcare team while maintaining their own social identity. Thank you for your time. And Dr. Messner, I'll return the program back to you. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Palos. That was an outstanding presentation, just wonderful. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is uh, Dr. Maria Chi, and Dr. Chi is clinical oncology social worker, author and researcher, healthcare disparities, social determinants of health, psychosocial oncology, and financial toxicity. And Dr. Chi will be addressing food and pharmacy deserts, including food insecurity, tips to increase your access to health, promoting nutrition, and job commitments, access, and transportation to treatment. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chi. Thank you, Dr. Messner. An illustration of the social determinants of health that Dr. Paulos just spoke about, factors such as access to healthy food, transportation, and flexible employment policies may also affect your ability to get quality health care and treatment. Let's take the first of these, access to nutritious food. Unfortunately, across this country, there are what we call food and pharmacy deserts. Basically, these are neighborhoods with very few or limited number of pharmacies and grocery stores or markets, so that you may have to travel a great distance to reach them, which is considered more than half a mile in cities and more than about 10 miles in rural areas. And that, in turn, might depend on owning a car or having access to reliable and comprehensive public transportation, which I'll speak about more in a minute. So as you can see, all these factors are connected. These food and pharmacy deserts have been growing over the past decade, even before the coronavirus pandemic, due to financial problems and changes in our economy. So when they can no longer make money or sustain themselves, these stores are closing in greater numbers. Areas that experience food deserts in particular tend to create food insecurity or not having consistent access to safe, nutritious, health-promoting food. 
we do know the quality of food matters in that less nutritious, more processed food tends to be more affordable and usually more abundant than things like fresh fruits and veggies. Fortunately, there are resources to increase your access to health promoting nutrition, such as local food banks and pantries or food distribution programs, sometimes on an emergency basis, sometimes they exist continuously throughout the year. Um, you can go to foodpantries.org or feedingamerica.org to find your local food bank. There are also mutual aid societies around the country that often help people find free or donated resources such as groceries. And you can go to mutualaidhub.org to find one near you. You may also look for soup kitchens, sometimes through churches or other religious organizations, or nearby senior or community centers that offer free hot lunches or breakfast. To see if you're eligible for food stamps, more formally known as SNAP or the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program, go to www.nutrition.gov backslash food assistance programs. Meals on Wheels also has food distribution programs for homebound seniors all over the country. And through Women, Infants, and Children or the National WIC WIC program, you can receive vouchers that can be redeemed for healthy foods at the grocery store. You may also ask your hospital social worker, case manager, patient navigators, nurse care managers, or nutritionists about these resources and where to find them in your community, or call Cancer Care's Hopeline for help in locating them. Now, previously I mentioned the challenge of accessing food or medicine because of limited transportation. Currently, transportation issues also play a significant role in getting to your medical appointments and cancer treatment. It's estimated that Americans living in rural areas of the country live an average of about 10 and a half miles from the nearest hospital, which is approximately twice as far as it is for people in cities and suburbs. Overall, 18% of Americans live over 10 miles away from their nearest hospital. And a recent cancer study showed that people with breast cancer living in rural areas traveled almost three times as far as people in cities to get their radiation treatment. This is sometimes called travel burden, not having access to adequate transportation to medical centers, which can result in delays in treatment and diagnosis, or getting inappropriate treatment at closer care centers that are not equipped to manage someone's cancer care or do not have the necessary specialists. To improve access to appropriate care, there are several things to note. First, many hospitals, clinics, and healthcare centers have patient navigators, case managers, social workers, nurse care managers, or resource specialists that can help you find special programs for travel or transportation grants. For example, local and national nonprofit organizations, such as Cancer Care, sometimes offer grants to help with transportation expenses. Some even help with the cost of airfare if you need to fly out of state for treatment. Other programs help people with the cost of lodging when you're staying far from home. Some organizations may offer assistance with the ride itself, such as the American Cancer Society's Road to Recovery Program, which has been gradually reopening since its pause during the pandemic. Also check with your insurance company. A limited number of private health insurance plans and more commonly Medicaid plans may offer non-emergency medical transportation to your healthcare appointments via ambulance or car service. Finally, a high travel burden may lead to a harder time meeting job commitments as you need to take more hours off from work in order to get to your faraway medical appointments. You may not have enough paid time off to accommodate the frequent travel, often over many months, that is required for many types of treatment. 
In turn, you may lose income or jeopardize your job by taking unpaid sick or personal days. Rather than delay or avoid your treatment, here are some suggestions. Ask your physician or healthcare team if a telemedicine appointment is possible, as Dr. Wong spoke about. This won't help with your treatment visits, of course, but if there is a type of follow-up visit that requires mostly speaking to your provider, then this might be a better option. You may also consider getting blood work done at a lab in your community rather than traveling all the way to your treatment center or hospital for the labs. Ask your healthcare team for help in arranging this. In order to continue accessing your treatment and healthcare appointments, you may also talk to your human resources department about whether your workplace or the state that you live in offers short-term disability benefits if you're unable to work for some period of time or whether your work setting qualifies for FMLA or the Family Medical Leave Act, which typically consists of about 12 weeks of leave without risk of losing your job and can be used intermittently. For example, in hourly or daily increments rather than all at once. It is important to note, however, that FMLA is unpaid and does require you to use any accumulated paid time off that you may have in order to receive income during this period. And finally, if your medical team deems you are unable to work for a period of 12 months or more, you may qualify for Social Security Disability Income, which a social worker or patient navigator can help you apply for. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Chi. That was really just an amazing presentation on a lot of topics that are very helpful to our participants. I also want to let everyone know that all the resources that Dr. Chi has provided, as well as any other speakers will provide, we will be giving you um, at the end of the well, probably about two or three days after the program, you'll get a survey monkey evaluation, which is an evaluation of the program. But you'll also be receiving all of those resources, links um, that Dr. Chi mentioned and others have mentioned, will mention along the way, so that you'll have, and even some additional resources as well, so that you have all those resources at your fingertips as well. Thank you again, Dr. Chi. And our next speaker is Ms. Leanne Medina Martinez. And Ms. Martinez is a Patient, she's a clinical oncology social worker and patient assistance program manager, cancer care, and she'll be addressing the role of housing, cost of treatment, and care on your health and access to cancer treatment in the LGBTQ community. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Leanne Medina-Martinez. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you all for being here today. Uh, so today I am going to touch upon three topics um, as we're discussing healthcare disparities. The first one is the role of housing. The second is the cost of treatment and care on your health. And the last one is the access to cancer treatment in the LGBTQ plus community. So first, I'm going to start off with the role of housing. And when we're talking about the role of housing, what we're referring to is location. Where you're living might impact the distance that you have to travel in order to receive treatment. So treatment facilities, depending on where you live, might be your greater distance, meaning that you might have to travel for about an hour to get to the treatment facility, um, and then you when you couple that with the frequency that you go, whether once a week, more than once a week, once every two, three weeks, it still is a strain for you to get there. Um, sometimes you have to reach out to family, friends, um, people that can help you 
get there to those facilities um, and you know there's also the struggle sometimes of having to coordinate these trips for you to actually make it to your appointments um, sometimes uh, you might live in a location where there is not a big treatment facility or there might not be certain specialists close by it might require you to travel to a different town um, in some instances it might even require you to travel out the state um, so these are extra expenses that are now being added um, to your everyday challenges already as a cancer patient just based on location just based on where you're living where your home is located um, and it does seem to add a financial stressor in certain locations usually if you're living in some kind of city Sometimes there is assistance available, such as a transport service that can take you to your appointment and bring you back. But again, that's not available everywhere, um, so not everyone has access to that. Um, and that's, you know, that's also a disparity. It would be helpful if that were to be available in all areas as something else that could be utilized aside from supports of family and friends. Um, so there's the expenses of paying for this assistance, paying for Ubers or Lyfts, any kind of car service, as well as paying for gas to get to the treatment facility, um, all based on where you're located and where the treatment facility is located. And that leads me into the next topic where we're talking about cost of treatment and care on your health. So the cost of treatment can definitely cause financial burnout along with these expenses that you have to incur for traveling to these appointments there's also the expenses of treatment whether it is co-payments that you're not able to pay whether it's insurance that you're not able to continue paying if now you are unable to work and unable to keep your insurance coverage now you have to pay for insurance out of pocket that is more expenses and more stressors that are now being added onto the cancer patient's everyday challenges. So in that, you know, we might find some cancer patients in the predicament of having to choose between cheaper treatment versus best treatment, um, choosing to forego certain medications for others, picking and choosing which medications to actually purchase, which ones they can get, and even deciding between treatment. Like, can I afford to pay for surgery and chemotherapy? Can I afford to pay for radiation versus surgery? Or should I only just do surgery because it's, that's the only thing that I can afford? So these are certain challenges that some of us are facing when we are unable um, to pay for cancer treatment. And just, you know, how difficult is that? to have to decide on what treatment would be best on like you know what it is what it's going to be best on in my budget what I can afford um, and what happens if I really can't afford any of these things like how am I supposed to get treated so these are challenges that honestly shouldn't be existing these are things that we shouldn't be stressing about but they do exist these are things that people have to battle with um, on a daily basis sometimes um, sometimes even having to take a lower dose of medications um, just to be able to afford getting some kind of medication in um, is also something that does happen 
the last thing that I would like to mention is access to cancer treatment in the LGBTQ community. There are challenges for people that belong to the LGBTQ plus community. Um, and one of the main things is trust. There's a lot of mistrust uh, when it comes to meeting with providers and feeling accepted by providers and that providers are going to be listening to members of the LGBTQ plus community. So members of the LGBTQ plus community sometimes have to travel a further distance to find a provider that they feel comfortable with. So, you know, a couple of things that we always suggest to providers is that if you are open to meeting with everyone, giving everyone access to care, then for people in the LGBTQ community, as simply as introducing yourself and using pronouns is already one way to invite them in, to have them feel more comfortable. You know, sometimes people in the LGBTQ plus community aren't able to get treatment at all because they just choose to not get treatment because they can't find a place where they feel that they would be accepted, where they feel like their supports would be accepted as a family unit, as a supportive unit, or where they feel like their their values and their beliefs will be honored as far as making decisions about their treatment. So these are all challenges that the LGBTQ plus community is facing. Um, and they also struggle with all the other challenges mentioned, the cost of treatment, you know, depending on where they live, what facilities they can go to. So what I do want to point out with all of this and all of these healthcare disparities is that these things are happening, but there's also help available, which is something that might not be known to everybody. So as far as financial struggles and strains, there are organizations that offer co-payment assistance. So there's co-payment foundations. Some of the ones are PAF. We have the PAN Foundation. Um, there's also uh, needy meds who assist with medications. And there's also patient assistance programs. So Cancer Care offers a patient assistance program. There's uh, Susan G. Komen is a known patient assistance program specifically for breast cancer. And there's a long list of programs available that can assist as far as helping when it comes to finances, whether it's assisting for payment for medications, co-payments for treatments, uh, assistance with transportation, assistance with receiving home care. Uh, so those are things that are available and you will all get some more information about that um, and you will also hear a little bit more about cancer care services and how they also help and you will also receive information about about other organizations that you can also reach out to that would be able to assist. And then as far as access for the LGBTQ community, there is a lot of work being done as far as trainings and helping there be inclusivity um, a lot more. So we are mentioning all of these things that we consider to be barriers right now to healthcare, but there's also solutions in the work. I just want to thank you all for taking the time to be here with me today, and I will turn it back to Dr. Messner now. 
Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Medina Martinez. That was a wonderful presentation, very comprehensive. And as Ms. Medina Martinez indicated, we will be sending all of you the SurveyMonkey evaluation, but in that evaluation, we will also include all the resources that she's mentioned, Dr. Chi mentioned, other speakers have mentioned, so you'll have those resources um, at your fingertips as well. And our next speaker is uh, Samantha Fortune. She is a, she's a clinical oncology social worker, women's cancer program coordinator at Cancer Care, and she'll be discussing Cancer Care's free programs and services, and we'll be discussing our HOPE line as well. It's my pleasure, and our website. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Fortune. Thank you, Dr. Messner. As Dr. Messner mentioned, my name is Sam Fortune and I am the Women's Cancer Program Coordinator as well as an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional services and information to help people manage the emotional, the practical, and the financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include resource navigation, counseling services, support groups, education workshops like this one, publications, and limited financial assistance. In my role at Cancer Care, I provide supportive services to individuals and family impacted by cancer diagnosis, as well as develop programs and initiatives for our women's cancer department. Individuals diagnosed with a cancer diagnosis may choose to supplement existing social support networks by either either joining a support group or engaging in counseling services. Many hospitals, like as mentioned earlier, treatment centers and nonprofit organizations offer supportive services as well. Being a member in a support group can offer the opportunity to speak with others who are going through similar experiences as you are, obtain information, and provide support. Currently, Cancer Care offers specific cancer support groups online, um, and this includes our Women of Color support group, which I'm currently running, and then we also have very various different support groups depending on what type of support you're looking for. Our online support groups aim to reduce feelings of loneliness and anxiety, explore new ways of coping, increase of empowerment, provide practical information about our treatment, or about your treatment, I should say, and resources, and address ways to communicate with your medical team and your loved ones. Our online support groups take place using a password-protected message board format and are led by um, professional oncology social workers who offer support and guidance. Groups are held for 15 weeks at a time, and group members must register to join. You can register for our online support groups through our website at cancercare.org by selecting our services, then support groups. After completing the registration process of our website, members can participate by posting the group 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And our next cycle for our online support group will start June 1st. Individuals may also experience practical and financial concerns throughout one's treatment, which has been mentioned throughout um, this meeting today. Please note that if you're encountering financial hardships, there are many organizations that are able to help you. Cancer Care's um, resource navigation service offers a short-term strength-based approach service to patients and caregivers affected by cancer nationally. A trained specialist will work with the client in connecting them to resources, referrals, and financial assistance. If you're interested in learning more about the supportive services we offer, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hope Line at 800-813-4673 to speak to one of our oncology social workers. At Cancer Care, our oncology social workers are trained in how a cancer diagnosis can impact an individual, as well as their loved ones. We're here to offer you support throughout this experience, and we look forward to hearing from you. It has been such a pleasure to be part of this program today. Thank you so much for your attention, and now I'll turn our program back to Dr. Messer. 
Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Fortune. That was a wonderful presentation, just um, excellent. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And now we have time for Q&A. I'm going to ask Regina to explain to you how to queue up for questions. We're going to take as many of your questions as possible. Regina. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. So on this question for Dr. Wong, um, my healthcare team is incredibly thorough and intelligent, but they keep misgendering me. It's affecting how I see them as physicians. Am I being too sensitive, or should I seek a new treatment team? Yeah, so sometimes um, it could be as simple as uh, the software not allowing uh, the full diversity of possibilities. Because when we walk into a room, uh, we're looking down at the chart. We we'll say, oh, Smith, you know, gender, must be Mrs. You walk in, and there you go. So uh, I always say never attribute to malice what can best be explained by bad software. And as someone who's implemented software in three major cancer centers, I can tell you there's all kinds of little nooks and crannies in the system that doesn't allow you to sometimes do these things. And as you know, some of these software are pretty legacy in the sense that they've been around for decades and have been built upon like a Frankenstein thing. So uh, you might want to double-check that. We don't have little sticky notes that we can stick on charts anymore that say, hey, you know, this is what this patient uh, wants to be identified as. In the old days, we had that, but it's all electronic now. You might want to double-check that. Um, and of course, if you're uh, feeling like this is something which is uh, uh, not related to sort of uh, a software issue or a, a mechanical issue systemically built into the system, then that's something else altogether. And sometimes people feel it in their gut more than anything else. And at that point, you would seek another provider. I always say that the physician-patient relationship is that a relationship, and it's built on two human beings coming together and interacting. Sometimes it goes fantastically well, sometimes not as much. And I can say that for my own practice as well. So um, so that's the best I can tell you today. Uh, but I would look at the uh, sort of built-in systemic issues before uh, attributing it to anything else more than that. Excellent. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Palos. My doctor speaks to me in broken Spanish and consistently mispronounces my name. I know he's trying, but how can I let him know that it makes me uncomfortable? Uh, that's a very good question, and um, I, I, it's it's going to differ depending on the relationship that you have with your providers. Um, I think what would be the most comfortable thing to do is when they come into your room or you're speaking to them, you know, pronounce your name yourself. I have the name Guadalupe. When people have a hard time, I get called all kinds of names with, with that Guadalupe. So I can relate to that. And so what I've learned to do over the years is just to kind of, when someone comes in the room, I go ahead and take the initiative and say, hi, my name is, and I introduce myself with the inflection on my name the way I'd like to. So that's one way that you could try to start the, the visit on a, on a good note, by you being a self-advocate and you taking uh, the time to say, this is how I say my name. And then the other thing is that many times people assume that your preference is either going to be Spanish or your preference is going to be English. It's an assumption. 
Um, and that's hard to get around. And again, you heard me speak a little bit about implicit bias. And some of that comes from that. So one of the simplest things, too, is to let your providers and your healthcare team know, um, my, you know, I feel more comfortable speaking in Spanish or I feel more comfortable speaking in English. And if you feel more comfortable speaking in Spanish and um, you don't feel comfortable with that broken Spanish, you can ask for a translator or for translation services, language services to come in and to help facilitate that. You don't want to use a family member or a friend that comes to the visit to try to help finish sentences or to be um, your, the medium between you and your provider. It's important for you to have some control over that visit that you have. So those would be, I think, two things that you could do. The other the, the thing that you could do is pretty much everyone has online medical charts. And there's a messenger uh, service within that where you can send a message to your provider. That would be another way to be able to say, you know, I really, you know, I really would prefer if you would get language services involved, or this is how I say my name, or I feel uncomfortable. It's a little bit easier to write that, and, and you can take your time putting it in a, in a non-threatening way, so that way your provider will feel, oh, this is, you know, this is important, and I'm going to try to, you know, address this in the best way that, that I can. It's that it, I want to remind folks, the patients and the caregivers on this call that that message service in your online medical chart is very, very important to use. It is a helpful and beneficial tool. So that's something that you can do. And if you don't feel comfortable writing in the, in, you know, the message online services, get a family member to help with that, you know, to compose the note or to even enter it. You can compose it and then they can enter it. So that would be a team approach. But I think that would be some of the things that you could do to be to empower yourself and to be an advocate for yourself and to take ownership into your own health. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Palos. That was really a wonderful response and a lot of excellent recommendations for this participant. And, um, and then um, a question for... Um, Dr. Wong, how can continuity of care be fostered and supported in a rural healthcare setting by patients, providers, outreach organizations, especially to EHR, EMR systems? Yeah, so continuity of care really means that uh, every healthcare provider who touches your case understands where you've been, where you are, and where you're going. Obviously, continuity of care uh, is best uh, if it's the same physician or physician group that looks after you. But in rural settings, that may not be always possible given the distance, given the fact that, uh, that healthcare providers rotate in and out of, uh, of, of such places. I think part of it is that you, you have to be also be proactive as well. So when uh, uh, an example in the oncology world is that I see consultations in patients who've been looked after by uh, easily three or four other oncologists. And by the time they get to me, uh, it's not altogether clear to me what's happened. Uh, the most helpful thing that I've come across are patients that actually have their care uh, written out, typed out, or whatever. With modern computers, you can do that. You can put it on your phone if you wish, uh, yeah, right? So important things, you can send an email to yourself and kept sending it and add to it and keep sending it to yourself as things happen. Uh, important pieces are, of the information are things like your allergies to medications, super important, uh, what medications you're on right now, 
and sort of um, uh, current medical issues and, very importantly, past medical issues because they can be impact. So that, that's just an example of the core information you need. Uh, but I do admit that that sometimes is difficult. And as you work, as you are taken care of by a variety of people in different medical systems, with different uh, computer systems, uh, even in our best efforts to link things up, you, it doesn't always work up uh, work that easily. So um, uh, I think the best defense, uh, sad to say, but importantly, is to be in charge of your own well-being and your own health care and to have the information. I have some sometimes patients hand me a hand me a, a, a folder or a piece of paper or something, and the more in, the, someone who was really uh, 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 sort of had a long history handed me a USB stick uh, as well. So um, that's examples of, of trying to get around a system which is not perfect at the time. Thank you. Thanks so much, Dr. Wong. And for Ms. Fortune, for someone who lives in a food desert and is going through treatment, what are my options? How can I make healthy, chemo-friendly meals with this limitation? Yeah, and I, um, thank you for the question. I know it's very tricky to find, like, healthy food sources. Um, I know one of the speakers earlier was mentioning um, to visit those food pantries, like the websites, that could be a resource. Sometimes, too, um, treatment centers, they have um, a nutritionist, too, that is covered through um, the insurance that can also work with your budget. Um, there's also um, a lot of budget-friendly um, lists on I don't want to say online, but like just like different, um, I guess, social media platforms where they have budget-friendly options. So that could be another way to explore that. But normally, where I refer to, I would my two go-to's would be reaching out to um, that website that's provided for food pantries, or trying to schedule an appointment with a dietitian or a nutritionist, which are normally most cancer centers have, and they can give you like a guide based on your budget. Excellent, and. Um this has been a remarkable call. I just want to thank our speakers. Um, I also want to remind everyone there is a part two of this series, which will occur on June 28th, Diverse Populations Participating Decisions About Your Care with Your Healthcare Team. So please, if you haven't already, sign up for that program. And I'm going to ask both Dr. Wong and, uh, and Ms. Fortune just to give you a takeaway from today's program. So Dr. Wong, if you want to go first. So, yeah, thank you. Uh, uh, COVID has given us great advantages, flattened the, uh, the, the, some of the barriers, no parking, no driving, not all that's required. Uh, and, uh, but again, in your end, it requires some setup, some uh, technology, and, uh, and also encourage you to, to take charge of your health care, have the information you need to, provide to, uh, to give to the provider, and more importantly, have a list of the, your concerns, important, the things that are important to you. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much. And um, Ms. Fortune? I would say that um, going through cancer is a rough journey, both for the patient and the caregiver, but you don't have to do this alone. There's so many supportive services and research you can utilize to help you navigate through the journey, so don't be afraid to ask for help and utilize every supportive services that's available. Excellent, thank you. And we also have another workshop on addressing the LGBTQI plus health disparities gap on June 16th. So um, if you haven't signed up for that one, please do. Um, and you'll be getting information about those workshops. Um, but I want to thank our speakers today. Um, I want to thank our participants as well because this has really been an amazing call. We covered a lot of territory. And I do want to um, now um, address each of you. Um, so. 
First of all, um, for those of you who asked a question, for those who have a question yet to ask, since we couldn't get to all of your questions, um, and for those who are thinking of a question, please go back to your treating healthcare team and ask your questions of them with the information you've learned today. Um, that's really important because they know you the best. They have access to your chart. They know you the best. Also, um, in terms of resources, because many of you brought up questions and our speakers provide resources, we'll be getting a SurveyMonkey in a couple of days, and in that SurveyMonkey, there will be, it's an evaluation of the program, but you'll also be getting all the resources that were mentioned will be written out for you. And most importantly, we don't want any of you to feel alone in coping with cancer. We want you to now, or with healthcare disparities, we want you to now know that you're a part of a community of support and we're here to help you. And you certainly can call the Cancer Care Hopeline at 1-800-813-4673. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.